You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, Partigan and Stapes invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I am Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. He, my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy birthday, Joe. <laughs> Still going with that. Great. Coming up on today's show, it is Poker Movie Mondays on a Wednesday, and that is it. I feel like, James, now we're doing the thing um, when the superhero movies start jumping the shark and they start having two villains in every movie instead of one. To be fair, we did do a double poker movie special before. I think it was a couple of years ago. Do you remember when we combined Deal and Lucky You into the same podcast? Because they were almost one movie if you put them together. That is true, but that was a discussion of two pretty mediocre movies, whereas this week you've got a treat because you've got two solid movies back to back. Two very solid movies. James and I both recently watched Cool Hand Luke, which has a poker scene, and House of Games, which has a poker scene. And now we're going to talk about it. Also, Superfan is going to talk about it too. House of Games. Anton will be challenging me to House of Games trivia. Uh, before we get into it, James, I just want to just want to let everyone know that I had a had a deep run. Probably heard about it by now, but I had okay. a deep run. Okay, so here we go. Before deep, deep run it up, Reno. Before we kick off our Poker Movie Mondays on a Wednesday that you listen to on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. Give uh, me the poker news sting. I made a final table. No, no, you don't get the sting. This is a postscript to last week's Run It Up Reno special. Joe, can you please time your deep runs in MTTs a bit better so that we can slot them into the correct genre of podcast? This is meant to be about films, not about you. What happened? Tell us all about it. Uh, I decided to play the uh, $235 black chip bounty, different from the progressive knockout. Now, right. you know I did score some bounties in the PKO, but I bubbled uh, in this regular bounty tournament. Uh, I I took out a bounty, and then I was eliminated on a flip. And everyone said, we'll see it. We'll see you when you rebuy. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to rebuy. And what did I do? I marched right over to the desk, and I rebought. This I have to say, is a marked improvement on going into the high limit slots lounge. Yes, yes, it is. So I, I just happened to walk past the, the desk and rebought, and then the second on my second bullet, um, I played real bad. So then I went, okay, um, I lost a flip on my first one, not my fault. Second one was my fault. Third time's the charm. Turns out, third time was the charm. I did end up uh, finishing in seventh place. That's a final table. That is a final table, buddy. I FT'd the the KO. Nice. And uh, yeah, I made it. I made about eleven hundred dollars in caches and six hundred in bounties, uh, which puts me. Even though I spent seven hundred dollars in buy-ins. <laughs> There's, you know how poker records work, right? No one keeps track of the buy-ins. It's all about the results. It's all about the cashes. And that's my second ever biggest handed map mob cash of free. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, so it was a it was a fun little run. I was so 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 card dead at the final table. I had uh, I was moaning quite a bit, and uh, I was complaining about how I had had nine four forty times. And then you can see there's a, a a section of the stream where I have a meltdown because as I'm complaining about it, I looked out at nine four. No. Yeah, so, uh, and then I get up from the table and, and, and like, throw a fit, but the wow. cameras didn't quite catch it. That anyway. is the proverbial glitch in the Matrix, for sure. Correct. I kind of feel the pressure's on. As you know, I'm playing in the uh, Moneymaker event this coming weekend, so I kind of feel yeah. I've, got to, I've got to keep the flag flying for Team Poker in the ears. I'll see what I can do. Um, so, yeah, let's just get straight into it, shall we? Cool Hand Luke is the first movie we're discussing. And, Joe, this was your suggestion, because a few weeks back you mentioned on the podcast that you watched it with Norm MacDonald, and he was surprised, as was I, that you've never seen this film before. Yeah, basically what happened was I went over to talk business with him, and he was like, what's that movie you've never seen that we were talking about the other day? And I was like, Cool Hand Luke? And he, then we couldn't do anything other than track down Cool Hand Luke and watch it, which, by the way... You'd think it'd be an easier movie to track down. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't impossible, but it no. wasn't in the first couple places that we looked. Well, I think I mentioned last week, I was surprised that it's not in the iTunes store in the UK, for example. Uh, however, my history with this film is I first saw it in the early 90s. It's a film that I had on VHS and watched countless times when I was like 15 or 16. And then it was one of the very first DVDs that I bought when I got a DVD player in 1998. This was back when... 
the discs had the widescreen version on one side and the pan and scan version on yeah. the other. And this disc, no word of a lie, has never been in a DVD player until last weekend. I'd never watched it. And I'm so glad that you brought this film up recently, Joe. I'm so glad we decided to revisit it because this is literally the first time I've ever watched this great movie in scope, in its original aspect ratio. And its cinematography is one of its greatest attributes. Conrad Hall is the director of photography on this. Also did Butch Cassidy, Marathon Man, American Beauty, Road to Perdition, coincidentally also starring Paul Newman. Um, But it looks beautiful. And I do think that this movie is worthy of discussion on a poker podcast. Not only does it have a poker scene, which we'll come to in a moment, it also has one of the greatest prop bets in cinema history, which is True. also appropriate for a poker audience. Um, you know, and I think I think the prop bet is what people know the most from this movie, even if they don't know it's like a prison movie. Yeah, they know about the fifty. It's fifty eggs, right? The fifty egg prop bet, and I think that that sort of does the movie a disservice. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why I avoided it for as long as I did, because I was like, I don't care about this fucking dumb movie where a guy eats fifty eggs. Who gives a shit? And I think it's one of those things where that's like the calling card for the movie, but that you could take that out of it, and it's and it's almost the same movie. I agree, although I do think in context that scene works. All that it for elements, sure. all of the individual elements. It's just, it's just not what the movie is, though. Sure, leads to a, a a great piece of cinema that has stood the test of time very well. I think it is a period piece in the sense that made in the end of the sixties, it's set in the nineteen fifties, and the implication is that Paul Newman's character Luke has returned from the Korean War. And one of the questions I was asking myself watching the film again. I mean, it has that very strong anti-establishment vibe of the the late 60s, early 70s. And it starts off with him just vandalizing these parking meters. His crime is so petty. Um, But I guess anyone who's ever got a parking fine also finds it quite sympathetic. And and what a great opening scene, too, though. Like, just, it it doesn't track. Like, you don't know why he's doing it or what what his purpose really is. But it's just, it, it just sets the the tone of who this guy is immediately completely and his motivation is something that throughout the film is a huge question mark everything he does what is his motivation and when asked why he took why he sawed the heads off parking meters his response is small town not much to do in the evening but the real answer may lie in the fact that a few times they refer to the fact that he had fought in the war Is he suffering from PTSD? Is he actually struggling to fit back into society, having come back from from combat? Well, you know, they didn't even have a word for that back then, really. If they did, it wasn't used very often. So I wonder if, you know, we're wondering about that. Did they even know? Yeah. Yeah. Was that even, you know, was that, you know, they say that art all the time, you know, even if you don't know what you're putting into it, you know, the truth is there regardless of whether or not it's intentional. Um, And I'm not sure that, that the the authors or the the you know the the artists behind this movie even really know that's what they were expressing but that's a hell of a theory and i like it because I, you know i had a lot of question marks about this movie um one of the things that that norm kept bringing up which maybe you'll get into that later is there also seems to be like a bit of a messiah this is the thing I dislike about the film, is the Christ metaphor. The pose yeah. on the table after the egg challenge, which is very much like Christ on the cross. The idea of yeah. the disciples and the way they turn their backs on him. And the finale where Newman actually has a direct conversation with God. That's my least favorite part of the film. And I prefer to kind of not look at it as some kind of metaphor for Christianity. Um This film rests on its cast, and clearly you've got Paul Newman in the lead role, and really it's the relationship between him and George Kennedy that's integral to its success. And Kennedy won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, playing the character of Dragline, the hardened con, and it's easy to see why, because he is brilliant in this film. But that takes nothing away from the amazing supporting cast, and there are so many actors, Joe, in this film who audiences were seeing for the first time they were unknowns people like clifton james harry dean stanton dennis hopper anthony zerbe joe don baker and it's a stellar cast and the atmosphere it creates the chain gang the sinister guard with the mirrored shades the faceless authority figures and 
how hot it feels all the time, especially during the storm, the sweat that you just see dripping off these characters. The atmosphere is so good. Yeah, uh, it is. The the cast is excellent and everyone kind of puts their own weirdness into their characters. Um, you know, nobody really plays it that straight. All these, you know, Dennis Hopper's character is so weird and bizarre and he's, he's not so even Hopper, really right. <laughs> yeah. And you just wonder like, wow, you're not even really the focus of this scene and you're off in the background doing weird shit. Like that's, you know, there's a fine line between uh, chewing up the scenery and uh, making, you know, just being a distracting background actor or just putting a little oomph, extra oomph into a character you're playing that isn't a main character. And I think he manages to ride that line pretty solidly throughout. Yeah. You referred to the 50 eggs and we will talk about the prop bet in a moment. For me, the most iconic scene in the film, which was later copied in a TV commercial, by the way, is the girl washing the car. The chain gang are out there, and this girl comes out and starts soaping this car, and they're, like, tortured. And as Paul Newman says, she knows exactly what she's doing. And I can't remember what the product was, but I remember seeing the advert on TV and then seeing the movie afterwards and going, oh, that's where they stole this one from. Uh, But at that point in the film, there's still this antagonism between George Kennedy and Paul Newman. And then there's the fight, of course. He challenges him to the fight where he just keeps punching him and punching him, but he won't go down. And then they become friends after the poker game, the poker hand. And I love this hand of poker in the movie, partly because it's five-card stud, partly because I love all the lingo and how authentic it feels. Pair of savannas, pair of sevens get to John, kick a buck. And the fact that you don't really need to know what the hands are, you don't really need to follow the action to get what this is about. The fact that you've got one player who's clearly got a mediocre hand who is trying to bet it and just Newman just keeps raising him back, raising him back, raising him back. And eventually he bottles it, he chickens and folds and Newman shows nothing. I think he's got king high for a complete bluff the hand of nothing and the line, which I know you're very envious of Joe, sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand. Yeah. I mean, that's the titular line of the movie. I don't know how the egg thing ends up being the thing everybody knows about this movie. Um, you know, and that scene, like many of the other scenes just shows you without knowing you're being shown repeatedly that this is a guy that would rather die than give up. He is the most hard-headed son of a bitch that's ever. And sometimes that hard-headedness is enough to get the job done. Yeah. So the scene that follows is the tarring the road, which is this strange act of, and this is going to be an oxymoron, compliant rebellion. Because the chain gang do what they're told to do. But instead of taking the whole day to tar this road, they go super fast. They throw everything they've got into it and they have the job done before sundown. And the guards don't quite know how to react. And what follows is where the film takes quite a dramatic turn. And the tone changes from being quite humorous and quite light to being quite dark. We have the kindly captain of the prison camp, right? And when Luke learns that his mother has died... He is told that he has to be put this into... Is so, this is so fucked. <laughs> absolutely. He is put in solitary confinement. He's put in the cooler, which is this awful kind of like um, uh, vertical shack where you can barely sit down and is clearly hot and disgusting. And you have one bucket for water and one bucket for your ablutions. And he's kept in there for like two or three days because they believe that when a man's mother dies, he starts thinking of escaping to go to the funeral and pay his respects. But I wonder, again, seeing the film now, are they already recognizing the fact that this guy's arrived in camp, he's stirring things up, they don't like the attitude, and they feel that they need to clip his wings and they need to teach him a lesson, and they're almost using the mother's death as an excuse. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Like, there's a lot of times when I watch older movies, there's just things that, that go over my head, and I just wonder, like... Is this uh, a flaw of the movie? Is this uh, just the fact that I don't understand the time and I don't really understand the traditions? I sort of just just accepted that 
this was a practice that they put a guy in solitary confinement when his mother dies, but I also didn't quite understand it. Um, also, especially given the fact that he didn't seem to have a particularly close relationship with his mother, um, obviously, you know, strained, right? He hadn't seen her in years or something when Correct. she shows up. Correct. Um, and of course, th- this point, we've already had the hard-boiled eggs, the prop bet, where Luke th- says he can eat 50 hard-boiled eggs in an hour, which I'm pretty sure would actually kill someone if they actually attempted it. There was a myth I- surrounding this film for many years that Paul Newman actually did complete the task. He didn't. I think in filming, he ate seven or eight eggs maximum and spat the rest out. Um, I think that uh, if you did this, I mean, I don't think you would die. I just don't think your body would let you complete it. There's just no way you wouldn't vomit it. And one of the rules of the challenges we know is there is no puking allowed. Anytime you're doing an eating prop bet, James, it goes without saying no puking. Come on. (laughs) And again, his motivation, it'll be something to do. Um, But again, it's an act of rebellion. The tarring of the road scene shows how he's, He's got all these guys following him, and the and the, the guards don't like it, and that's why I wonder whether they did put him in the cooler. But the irony is, you're absolutely right, Joe. He never showed any affection for his mother, and he also showed no intention of escaping before this incident. He'd also not really caused them any problems. And it's almost like, in reaction to being punished, having not committed a crime... They then created he, him. Exactly. Then he decides, okay, you want to play? Let's play. And so... He escapes. But again, what's his plan here? Is he actually trying to get somewhere or is he just fucking with them? Is it once again just something to do? I can't remember which escape it is, but the one where it looks like he got away and then he sends in like the the second one. That's the second one. one, The first one, he barely gets a mile away. He realizes that he can't outrun the dogs. um, And I think it's where he steals a car and he gets caught about, you know, because he's wearing convicts clothes and he's dirty and sweaty and the cop grabs him but the second time he so what escapes, the fuck happens during this second time this is so confusing to me yeah so the second time and this is where obviously he's now got the leg irons which he then has to chop off with the axe and then he uses the the the, the pepper and chili spices trick to throw the dogs off his scent. that's a hell of a scene by the way with the little kid that's great yeah just yeah another gem of a scene and he escapes of course with the shake shaking it here boss shaking the bush shaking it here boss <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, he, he's gone for some time, um, but I think he makes it clear when he's returned to the camp. So he sends the photo, of course, playing it cool with the two girls, which we later learn is a stage photo. He paid the girls for their time. He was, he was working, but clearly he was working illegally off the books. He upset his boss, so his boss snitched on him. The cops turned up, took him back to the camp. Got it. So, but what length of time was that supposed to have been? A few weeks, I imagine. I think weeks rather That's, than it's months. It's getting a lot done in a few weeks. I mean, we know, you know, we know he's resourceful, but to have escaped, gotten a job, gotten a, a photo shoot done, yeah, gotten had time to mail it in to the prisoners, like that almost felt that was very surreal to me. Like, oh, did this happen at all? Yeah. And then, of course, the captain loses his shit. What we've got here is failure to communicate, which I believe was the tagline on the original poster for this movie. And then, of course, we have the awful scenes where they are trying to break him. The whole dig a hole, fill the hole, depriving him of sleep and clearly treating him appallingly, beating him constantly and... It seems that they have broken him. They seems that he seem he's now like a, a completely sort of um, destroyed person. And then the final escape, when he steals the keys, steals the truck, and <laughs> George Kennedy, who goes, I only had like two months left on my sentence. Yeah, decide, oh my god! Decides to jump on the truck and come along with him for the ride. And again, you you want them to drive off into the sunset, but this film was made in an era where there were no happy endings. And this film is not going to have a happy ending. And it's reminiscent to me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because clearly the authorities feel that this disruptive rebel has to be stopped. And yes, they catch him, they have the church building surrounded, and they could have arrested him and taken him back to the camp. Instead, they shoot him even though he's not resisting arrest, and decide that they're going to take him to the local prison hospital, but clearly they're just going to drive around until he's bled out. And sadly, 
the title character does not survive. And here is my question. Did he actually change anything? Did he actually achieve anything? At the end of Cuckoo's Nest, first of all, Chief Bromden escapes, right? So it's a kind of uh, bittersweet ending. McMurphy yeah. is uh, lobotomized and dies. The chief gets away. But also, we have we witness the impact that McMurphy made on that ward during his time, how he's changed everyone, how he's given the others a, a new lease of life, a new confidence. Has anything changed in this prison camp? George Kennedy's had a few years added to his sentence, and he's now got leg irons. But I'm not really sure that he achieved anything with he these did. acts of rebellion. He did. There was something to do. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. He entertained everybody. It was a, probably the most interesting eight months that those other prisoners had. I agree with you. I don't think there was any substantive change to the justice system or to the or to prison reform or to the even the, you know, I don't even think he may have inspired some of the other prisoners a little bit. But uh, I just think that, yeah, it was just something to do. Yeah. And I think the director tried to make the ending a bit happier by having that montage of, as George Kennedy's talking about him, oh, he just did that smile. And then we have that montage of Paul Newman smiling throughout the movie. It doesn't really alter the fact that it's a downbeat ending. It's a sad ending to what I think is uh, an intelligent, entertaining film, which has stood the test of time. And watching it again, I didn't feel that it had dated. It felt very much of that era of of the the southern states of the U.S. in the 1950s. I think one of your observations when you saw it, Joe, was that clearly this was still in an era when prisoners were segregated because they're all white in this prison. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, where's all the black people? (laughs) Because we know what prisons look like in America now. So, yeah. um, And do you think that that was had changed by the time the movie was made? I don't think there had been as much change as maybe there should have been in a 15, 20 year period. And many of those anti-establishment films of the era were clearly calling for change. And in the same way that there are those references to Luke having returned from the war, not being himself struggling to fit back into society. Let's not forget in the late 1960s, America was deep into Vietnam. And I'm sure there were many people going through problems. It was so much easier to make a movie about a war. Uh, or, or trauma from a war that was already over rather yeah. than draw attention to the one currently happening. We see I mean, that. In, how in many time. films were there made during the 60s, 70s, which were set around the time of the Korean War, which were clearly about Vietnam? Yeah. The most famous, of course, being MASH, both the movie and the TV series. Yeah. Um, you know, One thing I will say that is not much to do with this movie. Just, is there, has there ever been a handsomer guy than Paul Newman? Oh. Ever? A good-looking guy and also a phenomenal actor. And I think there were concerns that he could not pull off this character. Um, yeah. Because he was such the kind of... Uh, he, he was too good-looking, too charming. Could he be convincing as a prisoner? But no, he was a very good actor and he's excellent in this film. It's amazing to me, by the way, we salute George Kennedy for winning the Oscar for Cool Hand Luke. Paul Newman, it took him decades to win an Oscar. And I believe he was nominated for this film, but he did not win. Do you think it was because of the competition that he faced back then? Or maybe it was it tough to give a to, to such a, no, a, I th- like a handsome bubblegum looking? Of course, there's always stiff competition, but it just seems in retrospect, one of those bizarre things, how long it took for yeah. one of the greatest post-war stars to be acknowledged by the Academy. Um, but no, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing this again. Um, it's, it's a shame that it is a kind of a downer, but the journey along the way, so many of the set pieces, the scenes, uh, the environment within that prison camp, you know, offsets that feeling of kind of despondency. You said it at the beginning, but it's worth mentioning. And the movie just looks gorgeous too. Yeah. Like it's just so pleasant despite how unpleasant a lot of it is. It just looks very pleasant. And a shout-out to Lalo Schifrin for the awesome soundtrack as well. Uh, So we've reached the halfway point. Let's fast-forward 20 years to discuss our second movie of this Poker Movie Monday special.
So, House of Games, which I believe, Joe, was David Mamet's directorial debut, having been a playwright for many years. That makes sense. I, I went through a huge phase in the 90s of being, like, Mamet was my favorite. Um, I don't think this was my first Mamet movie I saw. I think I probably saw The Spanish Prisoner, maybe, was the first one. And then I went back and watched some of his earlier ones. And what I remember during that time finding his style and the acting style in his movies, I liked it more than I do now. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why that's changed and what I found then to be really hip and cool. I find to be kind of stilted and, um, almost schlocky. I'm kind of with you on this. And I think it's interesting to read that the film was later adapted into a stage play and that many critics prefer the theatrical version to the cinematic version. And I can understand why. I do think it's quite stagey in places. Yeah. And I do think it's quite ironic. We've just discussed a film from 1967, which has stood the test of time. And this film from 1987 doesn't feel like it has particularly. It feels a lot like a play, and it feels a lot like uh, like a play from the 1960s. Like I don't think there's anything about this movie that particularly needs it to be taking place in the 1980s. Yeah. And that's probably intentional, like the whole grifter thing. And one thing that I'll say is that even though I my enjoyment of this movie went down slightly uh, from what I saw, I think it's not entirely the filmmaker's fault. I think that we have been bombarded by the con genre uh, for the last 30 years. And it's really tough to watch this movie with a fresh set of eyes First of all, having seen it already, and then second of all, having seen almost every con movie to come along in the last three decades, it's really tough to not sit there and poke holes in it the entire time. Of course, it's also really hard to replicate the original experience of watching this, not knowing the twists, not knowing how the plot is going to unfold. Um, I remember first seeing this film, again, around the same time as I saw Cool Hound Luke in the early 1990s. There was a TV slot on British TV on the BBC, Joe, called Movie Drome, where the director, Alex Cox, would introduce films that you may have missed, art house movies, foreign language movies, and this was one of the films he presented. And he would normally give a brief introduction and tell you some stuff to look out for, or give you the backstory to its production, yeah. talk about the director. In the case of House of Games, he said, I don't want to say too much about this because to say anything would be to spoil it. And instead he went on a huge rant about the opening credits and how boring they were, that they were simple white text on a black screen with piano music, and how lazy this is when filmmakers don't don't put any effort into the opening I credits. Disagree. I disagree. Even though I have some complaints about this movie, I think the <laughs> opening titles are great. I have no issue with the opening titles, and I but I can't watch the opening titles now without hearing Alex Cox's voice in my head ranting and whining about what the start a weird, of this movie. What a weird thing to pick up. He on. was a weird dude, to be fair. Um, so before before we get into this plot, let's talk about. Can we talk about Lindsay Krauss? for a minute well there's two people I wanted to highlight Lindsay Krauss and Joe Mantegna because they are the two stars of this film and the first question I was going to ask Joe is what happened to Joe Mantegna because he's bloody brilliant see I like him in this and he is bloody brilliant but I'll say this Lindsay Krauss in my opinion and Joe Mantegna in this movie have absolutely zero sex appeal either one of them correct are, are both and they have no chemistry I can't quite decide whether Lindsay Krause is underplaying the role or is just completely wooden. I get that Dr. Margaret Ford is meant to be a cold fish. She's meant to be a very standoffish character who can't relate to anyone. But through that, I can't quite work out whether Lindsay Krause is performing that or just is very uncomfortable in the role. So the fact that she's married to David Mamet, I believe at the time, doesn't help her case, I don't think, which is kind of shitty that that's where our mind goes. Where We're like, oh, well, he's married to the lead actress. It would make sense that maybe she's not that great of an actress. However, I have seen her in other things and she is, quote unquote, better. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, this. I think I've seen her in other stuff, and she's been absolutely fine. So it, it could well be the material, the direction she was getting uh, that led to this performance. But yeah, I, I think Joe Mantegna really is what kept me watching this film on the most recent viewing because I wasn't really enjoying it. I was cringing a lot of the time, but I still thought he what was made brilliant. you cringe? Just how dated it felt and how awkward some of the scenes are. Um, it's a weird one, right? Because just to give the... the the basic introduction to the plot, Dr. Ford, psychiatrist, one of her patients, Billy Hahn, a compulsive gambler, comes to her and shames and bullies her into helping him. So she goes down to the House of Games where, where she's introduced to Joe Mantegna's character, Mike, and there's this poker game going on. And it's a really weird one because the poker game cinematically is awful. It's cliched, it's unbelievable, it's implausible, the dialogue is terrible, but it's meant to be because the whole thing is a setup. (laughs) The whole thing is fake. It's a con. And in that regard, you therefore have to excuse it, but it doesn't make it any easier to watch just all of the string betting and the awful cliches they keep churning out. If you want to win a hand, you got to stay in until the end. And and like and unlike it, let's go visit Mr. Moore when we're going to raise. Uh, how about this? How about this? Uh, I have a big decision to make. I'm going to the bathroom. Yeah, and for the avoidance of doubt, ladies and gentlemen, you Excuse are me, sir, not allowed to go pee when facing a big decision. Your hand would be folded. Yes, so it ridiculous. Would be dead. So I remember that when I saw Rounders, um, the concept of Texas Hold'em, I didn't like it. Right. I was like, I don't know what this is. This doesn't make sense to me. This isn't the poker I've seen on TV. But, you know, I didn't. Ha- it was 1998 or whatever it was. I've never um, played poker or seen it really, what a real poker game is. And so Rounders was like, uh, I don't know if I like this whole Texas Hold'em thing, this whole community card thing. It seems kind of weird to me to share your cards with other players. Now, when I watch anything that has draw poker in it, I'm like, how did anyone ever play this game? It makes no sense whatsoever. It's just betting and raising. There's no, there's no, it's no limit draw poker. I know. And all the string betting and the calling and the, Oh, the whole hotel thing is ridiculous. The The whole, he played with his ring at the exact moment I went to the toilet, but then you can't poke too many holes in it because as I said, the whole right. thing is meant to be a setup. It's a but scam. It's, it's very clear, though, that there is some, that Rounders is heavily influenced by this movie, though, right? Sure, sure. Did you not like? I saw a ton of a ton of like, oh, this is like either Rounders paid homage or sure. Was and there is just, you know, certainly a lot of pot splashing going on in this game. <laughs> um, the one line I did like is when Ricky Jay says to um, Joe Mantegna, where are you from? And he says, I'm from the United States of Kiss My Ass, which I think is an amazing response. It also begs the question, why would you ever put water in that water pistol? But I think that kind of comes up in conversation again. But of course, she's meant to notice it because it's all part so of the then wider when you analyze scam. It even when you analyze it even further though, right? Which I don't like to do that much. I don't like to pick it apart, but hey, it's a podcast. That's what we're doing here. What if she didn't notice the water dripping out of the water pistol? Like that seems like a very then worst like, case maybe, scenario, you scam her for six grand, right? Right, or maybe they just had other fail saves that she would catch at some point. Yeah, you know, they would slowly escalate. Look, if you start to analyze every single set of circumstances which requires the wider con, the main story to play right. out, you could easily start. They leave poking a lot to chance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the fact that it's five card draw, ridiculous. The tell thing, ridiculous. So the poker game is terrible, but it's meant to be. So we'll forgive that, and then. Of course, Dr. Ford is introduced to the whole world of con artists. She's introduced to the flu. uh, And Mike knows that she's going to be back for more because she is the type. Now, the one thing in this movie that I just did not get and did not understand why it was in there are the scenes with the psychiatric patient. How does... How... What? I think because... um, I, I think it's supposed to show us that she is approaching that sort, that state... Right. Uh, that she will eventually be that crazy woman, that she will eventually be that psychotic. Okay, right. So shadowing. Like, Got it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like this is the shell of a person that 
that she is capable of being. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't really know what happens after the movie, but I guess we do. They, they show that she ends up perfectly fine with, uh, and has forgiven herself. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just supposed to be sort of like the, the cautionary tale of like, this is where you could be, this is where you could end up. Yeah. Uh, so then of course we have, uh, I think but this is one thing I wasn't sure of. So we have the scene where he demonstrates how to pull off a con, right? At the Western union office where yeah. he dupes William H. Macy. And yeah. Is that a genuine con or is, again, he one of the crew and the whole thing is staged for her benefit to make her think that they're pulling off these? I think that was a genuine okay. con. And if we, it, the, um, I would have thought it regardless, but I think the way you can show it is that everyone that was involved in their cons is in that scene at the uh, diner at the end. And William H. Macy isn't there. So I assume had it, had that been part of it, he would have been there as well. Right. Uh, That scene at the diner, we need to spend a lot of time over. That is, that is, there's a, uh, are we going there now? No, we're not. Let's keep this chronological. Devastating line in that scene. Let's keep it chronological. Um, so then we have Mike's seduction technique, as I've written here, with multiple question marks, which I think just hits the point you, you made at the start. you want to make love with me? <laughs> which is like, the lack of chemistry between these two is is palpable. And yet somehow they end up going to this hotel room, uh, sleeping together. And what I do think is interesting about this movie is that someone who is clearly very intelligent is being conned by someone who she knows is a con man. How does she never question what's going That's on? That's exactly why. That's this is why these people fall for it is because they know they're smarter than this person or think they are, and getting close to it without getting done themselves is a thrill. Like obviously, this whole movie is her thrill seeking. Yeah, is her wanting to explore that dark side and being compulsive, the same way that all of her patients are. Well, not the same way, in a different way, but that same sort of compulsion. And I think that it's ego. Uh, you know, when in the doctor's case, it's ego where you say, I know this person is a con artist, but I won't be conned. Yeah. Um, I'm the exception. So then we have the main sting, the briefcase, the ATK, and of course that wonderful moment when they realize that Joe has lost the briefcase. And she is then an absolute mess thinking she's killed someone, gives them the money. And I do wonder, Billy's visit, was it necessary? I mean, as far as the plot's concerned, it's absolutely necessary because he then jumps into the red car and uh, leads her to becoming Dr. Ford's super sleuth. But had they just left her alone, they would have got away with it. It It just feels like these guys were smarter than that. I would have liked to see her come to the decision to go back to the diner or to 211 Beaumont Street on her own because I don't think sending Billy accomplishes much on their end like he reports back to them like everything's a-okay which a it wasn't and b if it were I don't know how you would glean that from a two-minute interaction uh, outside the door to her office so I I think there's probably a better way they could have gotten there for that for sure it would have been I, when she drops the pocket knife, I didn't remember how she got um, decided to go back again. And when she dropped the pocket knife, I was like, oh, this is going to be it. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not it. Yeah. Um, and then I remember then obviously Billy shows up. I agree with you that 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 exact sort of device doesn't quite work. I mean, and again, this echoes what you were saying, Joe, about how we've seen so many of these movies about grifters and con men and elaborate scams, I was thinking, wow, maybe this is part of an even wider con where they're now tipping her off to the fact that she was the mark and that whole scene in the bar is a setup because they're going to get her even more and this is going to lead to an even bigger sting. But no, it's just an awful scene with exposition in every single line of dialogue. And I'm sorry, but the reveal is David Mamet is better than this scene. I think, okay, I'm going to defend this scene. And I don't disagree with anything you just said. But I think that as far as it's just supposed to be absolutely devastating to her, right? Like every line more damaging than the next leading up to an absolute haymaker 
haymaker of a line where they say, you fucked her, and he goes, a small price to pay. And that is just awful. Yeah. Like, you just... And so I I agree with you that it's like a little bit like, and now I'll reveal the entire plot to you while you're tied to the train tracks. Um, but I think it, it kind of has to happen like that because it's like she's getting beaten up. Like, I, I, I think that the dra- drama of that scene and like watching her react and hit her all at once, for me, it's worth it. But I understand what you're saying. It then leads to the showdown at the airport. She tries to con the con man. She makes a key mistake in what she says. And then she shoots him multiple times at an airport with not a single person hearing any of the gunshots because there's a plane going overhead. And her prints, by the way, are everywhere. But that doesn't bother her. She walks away from the crime scene and goes on holiday. The end. Right. So... Uh, I I don't think this is the case, but doesn't the the epilogue like the tag feel again kind of surreal? Um, that maybe that's not what actually went down. I don't. I think that's unlikely. No, but I, it's very no point. soft lit, soft lighting. The guy comes up to her with the with the with her book in his hand somehow. You know, it's. I feel like. Again, I don't really think this is it, but there's a chance that this is the ending she imagines. This is the fantasy. Interesting. If there was anything else in the movie which had pointed towards her having kind of moments of fantasy, I would say yes, but it would be out of the blue. I actually didn't mind that first ending. So where we see her on holiday and the guy approaches her, are you Dr. Margaret Ford? And she thinks he might be a cop might be an investigator and all he wants is his book signed and you can see in her eyes that it's almost like she wants him to be a cop she almost wants to be caught at that stage that was quite interesting the stealing the lighter at the end is a little bit naff there are too many moments in this movie (laughs) where i thought that's a bit naff that's a bit naff and i concede there's been a lot of nitpicking in this analysis this is still a pretty smart movie it's still a very entertaining movie and if you take the take the naff bits right yeah, and just if you can erase all of the movies you saw of this genre afterward, do you still find it as naff? Um, no, but I don't think it's as good as I remembered it to be. It's perfectly yeah. fine, but when you consider the films that David Mamet has made since, I think Things Change is a better film. I think Homicide is a better film. Uh, he didn't direct it, but Glengarry Glen Ross he wrote the stage play. He adapted it into a movie. He added the character that Alec Baldwin plays for the purpose of the motion picture. He's done better work. I, okay, if you have the chance, James. So I still rate the Spanish Prisoner in my top five of all time. Do you know what? I don't know if you. I, I I have very little recollection of it. It's a film I need to revisit. Yeah, I was gonna say, why don't you? If you get the, get a chance, watch that, and I will revisit it also because I haven't seen it probably in over ten years, and I think that Spanish Prisoner still has the sort of weird patter and cadence um, be, in the dialogue that we're used to from Mamet, but I think that. By the time he does this movie, it's a it's another con movie, um, but I think he fixes some of the mistakes that he makes here, and uh, what ends up happening is a is still you know again we're gonna have to look at through the lens of having seen a hundred million con movies since then. I think that he like basically made up like almost remakes House of Games, and and knocks it out of the park. So maybe we can both revisit this briefly since i don't think there's a 10 years poker connection <laughs> although ricky j does go to a casino okay off camera okay and so i'm not sure if we can again this i think was one of the first if not the first screen appearances uh by ricky j playing the poker player in that scene at the house of games and he's brilliant because the first time I saw this, he had me convinced that he was genuine. And again, it's really hard to n- see this movie more than once. Because once you know the entire plot, that's when you start poking holes and looking for flaws. The first time you see it, you're in her world and you're just swept up in it. And when the reveal happens, you're like, oh, rather than, ooh, this is a bit awkward. Um, but yes, we are not done with House of Games because this movie is the subject of this week's Superfan Quiz. 
One of them loves the EPT, knows it inside out, and would do anything for the European Poker Tour. The other one is Joe Stapleton. It's Superfan versus Stapes. Please welcome to Poker in the Ears, Anton Zykin. Welcome, Anton. Hello, my babies. Yeah, buddy, that's right. Chip in a chair. Let's get all the catchphrases out now. <laughs> <laughs> you do realize you're going to have to pay him royalties on that one, Anton. He will be taking a percentage of your 55 euro EPT Prague satellite ticket action should you win this edition of Superfan vs. States because you excellent, do realize excellent. that not only has Joe just re-watched this movie, but we've just spent the better part of 30 minutes discussing it. Oh, dear. Um, I look forward to uh, listening to your review later on. I want to hear your some review, of my thoughts. Though. Yeah, let's hear yours. Mine? Um, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie, I'm afraid. I'm sure that back in 1987, if I watched it then, I would have been more impressed. But I feel that there have been many movies dealing with this subject since then, and that kind of ruined it for me a little bit. You know, films like Matchstick Man spring to mind. So when I was you know watching what? this... Ma Matchstick Men, James and I talked about this, what you're saying, Anton, just a few minutes ago, yeah. about how there's been so many movies like this since then. And I will say that Matchstick Men was one of the few of that era that I watched and I was like, okay, like this kind of entertained me. Um, when, when I hated it, where I was for a while, I was like, no more con movies ever. And I saw mm. Matchstick Men and I was like, you know what? That was okay. That was pretty solid. I like that one. So, yeah, so I think in terms of the movie itself, the reason that I didn't have a great experience is that once you know what a short and long con are, it becomes very transparent that Margaret is the mark. And right. then you're just kind of going through the motions, just waiting for her to give her money away. So you saw it um, coming? I did, yeah. Wow. Because we were just, we agree with pretty much everything you're saying here. But one of the things that we thought that is, if you were watching this for the first time, you probably still get more out of it. But it never occurred to me that you would watch it and, and guess the reveal before you've actually had the reveal. I think it's just because I'm watching it in 2019. Yeah. Had I watched it back then, and I know that, you know, this movie came out to quite favorable reviews at the time and a lot of people really liked it, I'm sure I wouldn't have seen it coming. But it's just that I know a little bit about how, how the cons work because I've seen programs and movies about it. So it was very obvious, you know, she, she's a successful writer and then suddenly all these things start to happen. So you kind of you kind of just, you know, you just learn to kind of see where the movie's going. Yeah, very yeah. much a film of its time. So tell us about yourself, Anton. What's your deal? Um, I'm, I'm a drifter. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm a drift. I'm 33 years old. I work as an immigration consultant, which I think is the first for you guys. Yes, I'm is. married with kids, and also I'm a Russian national, but I've never been to Salisbury, so, uh, so you guys are safe. <laughs> ah, good one. You're not a fan of the architecture, I <laughs> Well, actually, my, uh, my fellow comrades do tell me that the, uh, the cathedral and the ancient clock are, are rather wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best thing anyone's ever said on this show. Uh, oh. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like uh, interesting work, Anton. What, what, what brought you here? Well, I've been here since I was a teenager. So my parents moved, uh, you know, when I was 14. And then, you know, I've, I've lived here ever since. And do you find much time to play at the pokers? I do. I am a recreational poker player. I'm a big fan of your show as well, guys. Uh, I've been to one of your live shows, and I've actually sat at the same table as you, James, and watched you bust out within five minutes in a horrible, horrible <laughs> bad beat. Oh, I could God. see the pain in your face. It was pretty, it was pretty horrific. Which Do you event remember was the that? bad beat, James? I don't remember. Which uh, event was this? That was the event for the, basically, I think it was for the super fans and the fans of the show in London. Oh, and, yes. And um, you, just, you just sat down at the table. Yeah. And I could see that you wanted to play the tournament. And you had the nuts. And you were just betting all your chips and thinking, just fold. But the guy just, you know, there was a bounty on your head. Yeah. So he looked you up on it with a bad draw. And, uh, and, uh, and you were gone shortly after that. And that was sad because you were a good presence at that table. Thank you, Anton. And that's the thing. I don't need to win. I just want to play. And when I you've know, been busted from the event, you can't play anymore. Like, just don't call me. <laughs> you know, you were like, just fold. I've got it. 
Oh, man. Well, let's hopefully give you some nice PokerStars merch and that EPT Prague ticket. I have got 10 questions about House of Games, plus bonus questions. The multiple choice options are there if you need them. Anton, as our guest, as our super fan, you get to go first. So please give me a number between 1 and 10. Well, Joe, it doesn't look like I'm done with the catchphrases because it is always coming seven. <laughs> okay, so what is the name of the Marine at the Western Union played by William H. Macy? Oh. Multiple choice options are available should you need them. Okay, I'll take the choices, please. Is his name John Moran, Jack Morgan... James Mitchell or Jim Morrison? John Moran. John Moran for one point and you are on nice. the board. I think Oof. you've got one of the harder questions there, Anton. It feels, yeah, because I've actually, you know, I was watching the movie and I was trying to remember everything and I thought you might bring up uh, William H. Macy, you know, as making an appearance but and, and maybe who he made an appearance with, but I just couldn't remember the guy's name oh. until, never, until you said them. It's never them. so easy as just having a name and actor for James. And, and, uh, and James, I know how much you uh, uh, <laughs> you don't like super fans who are not prepared for the quiz. So I, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've made notes. I'm sure you've all written down. I'm sure you've all written down the address of the House of Games, but I'm not that that easy that's not going to be a gimme that either of you are going to get thrown excellent excellent i'm going to i'm going to nominate anton for super fan of super fans just for how clever he is so i'm just going to put him out there well, okay that's, that's very kind of you joe joe you can have any question other than number seven question number one what is the full title of dr margaret ford's book I'll take the choices, please. Is it addiction, understanding and controlling impulses, driven, obsession and compulsion in everyday life, hooked, suppressing unconscious desires, or contrition, forgiving yourself? I had to make sure that there wasn't two drivens because I wouldn't put it past you. Driven, please. It is driven for one point, and there is a bonus question. How many copies of the book do we see Dr. Ford sign during the film? Two copies. Correct. There's the woman at the beginning and the man at the end. Anton, which question would you like next? Number two, please. How much does Billy claim he owes Mike? $25,000. Correct for two points. Bonus question. According to Mike's ledger, how much does he actually owe? $800. Correct for the bonus points. Joe, you're up. Question number nine. When Dr. Ford overhears the cop talking on the radio, what does he say the signal will be? Clearing his throat. Correct for two points. Bonus question, which actor plays the fake cop? JT Walsh. Correct. Joe, you have a 5-4 lead as we go into the next round. Oh dear, oh dear. Three, four, five, six, eight, three, or ten. Please. Question number three. three. Please, uh, what type of business is underneath the House of Games? Hmm. Multiple choice options are available. I'll take the multiple choice, please. Is it a drugstore, a candy store, a liquor store, or a bookstore? Is it a liquor store? It is not. It is a bookstore. Oh. And the bonus question is, what is the name of the bookstore? <laughs> well, um, I'll let Joe have Liquor's a go Liquor's books. <laughs> it was actually called the Paperback Exchange. I would have got that one wrong too, Anton. I was lucky I didn't choose that It one. is luck of the draw, as you know, with these questions. Joe, what question would you like next? I'll take the lowest question available, please. Number four. What color poker chip does Mike give Dr. Ford as a memento? Red. It is a red chip for two points. And your bonus question, in most U.S. card rooms, what would that chip be worth at a cash table? Five bucks. Correct. Anton, five, six, eight, or ten? Wow, James, Joe is killing it today. Absolutely smashing I did warn this you. quiz. I said I did uh, warn you. I take the uh, the lowest available question, please. Number five. When Joe demonstrates the flu, the twenty dollar in an envelope scam, what type of store does he use as an example? Uh, a post office. It's not a post office. Would you like the options? 
I'll take the options, please. Is it <laughs> a drugstore, a candy store, a liquor store, or a bookstore? A drugstore. It's a candy store. You're not doing well with your types of store. No, I'm doing terribly. And you know what? Joe is always complaining about the other questions. And I feel like I have to have a moan as well <laughs> because I would have gotten his. But that's fair. Carry that's on, fair. guys. Six, eight, or ten, Joe? Uh, ten, please. At the very end of the movie, what was on the buffet? A Waldorf salad. Correct, for two points. <laughs> he is crushing. Uh, you can have six or you can have eight, Anton. Let's go for six. Whose bar does Mike like to hang out at? Charlie's Tavern. It is Charlie's for two points. And Joe, question number eight. What is the number of the hotel room that Mike and Dr. Ford borrow for the evening? 326. It is not 326, and as the options haven't gone, you can steal, Anton. Sorry, say the question again, please, James. The number of the hotel room that Mike and Dr. Ford borrow for the evening so they can make sweet love. Um, I believe it is a reference of some sort. Uh, 1138. It is 1138, and the bonus question, what is the significance of that number to film nerds? It is a George Lucas film called THX 1138. Correct, oh, which gives you one point. However, Anton, a total of nine points. Joe Stapleton, 10 points. He oh my God. squeezed out a victory. Anton, you put in a very good showing. I'm very sorry. You did get unlucky with your no pick problem, of the questions. Guys. But don't worry. We are still going to make sure we send you a PokerStars t-shirt and a PokerStars water bottle. I had an absolute blast, guys. And Joe, congratulations. You played Thanks, excellent. Buddy. Look, I gotta, I'm, I'm running super hot. So I don't know if you heard about me at running up Reno, but I hit a Royal flush. I had hit the slot machines. I've made a final table at a tournament. I'm, I'm finally coming in my own. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> well, congratulations. And thanks for having me guys. Anton, thank you very much for your continued support. Love having you on the show. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, my babies, we are just about out of time for this week's show. Next week, the Moneymaker Tour is back. There's been one in the USA. There's another in the UK. It is all Moneymaker all the time. There are several Moneymaker stops in the UK and Ireland. I will be playing the event at the Hippodrome this weekend. I'm going to be there on Friday the 25th. I think it's day 1C, the noon kickoff. Uh, and Chris... Moneymaker himself is going to be in London in this studio on this podcast next week, recapping that event and looking forward to the other Moneymaker events still to come. Wow, Chris is available. There's no car dealership opening that weekend or they don't need a, a pundit on CNBC 41. He was available, yes. That's assuming he doesn't have any more flight traumas. I don't know if you followed his journey man, from oh, Sochi to Reno. Oh, wow. I mean... The number of flights he had to take, there was no way that journey could go smoothly. But it no. could have gone less badly Bad. than it could actually have been did. Better. It was the lost baggage that then had to go to his home in Memphis rather than to where he was that was the worst part, I think. And to his credit, I give Chris a lot of uh, a lot of flack, but uh, he showed up in Reno and immediately started doing the Chris thing. Was just taking photos and slapping people on the back. I love that guy. Real excited to have him on the show. If you have questions for him, let us know. Tweet him, tag him, hashtag Poker in the ears. Oh man, I'm really excited about the super fan subject. Next time it is Spider Man into the Spider Verse, a recent movie. Super happy to watch that one again. I hope I have the time. I have been busy AF. I got up at 5 in the morning to watch House of Games today, which is why it was so fresh in my mind. That's why, Anton, <laughs> you never stood a chance. No, no chance. It's like the, 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 the rental hasn't even expired yet. So <laughs> that's all the time we got for this week's show, guys. Subscribe, like, comment, smash those buttons. Please give us some love. But until next time, for James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. No.